remember I sing that song. I never forget that uh, <clears throat> one time hearing in a, a uh, class on teaching children that you always have to listen to how children listen to things. And children don't have great vocabulary, so sometimes when they hear a t- title like Christ a rose, what they hear is Christ a rose. <laughs> so one, one ought to think about those things if you're a teacher for children downstairs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful that we can come together to worship you this morning through the teaching of your word. We thank you that we have a risen Savior, a Savior who conquered death and whose victory over death paved the way for our victory over death, a Savior who provided a so great salvation, a salvation that goes far beyond anything we could ever hope for or ever imagine, and a salvation that is based upon your grace based on your character, not based on who and what we are. So, Father, we are indeed thankful above all things that we can worship you this morning because of our risen Savior. Father, we thank you, too, that we live in a nation where we have freedom, the freedom to worship, and during this time of national crisis where we are engaged in a war against terrorism, we continue to pray for our leadership, for our president for the cabinet members, his advisors, for congressional leaders, military leaders, and for the troops, the the men and women who are uh, actively engaged in this war. We pray that you would watch over them, give them wisdom and skill as they execute this war. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be open to what you have to teach us through your word. We pray that we might be able to understand this under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, put it together with other doctrines that we have learned that we might continue to advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Now, it's always <clears throat> interests me now and then I realize that there are gaps in your education, or at least some of you have a gap in your education. I hit Jim with this this morning, and he sort of, it's too early in the morning for him. 
Today is not Easter. Oh, it is if you're a pagan. But if you uh, believe in the scriptures, today is Resurrection Day. Easter has its etymological derivation from the uh, Babylonian fertility goddess Ishtar, who was signified by uh, eggs and rabbits. And, uh, you know, in the early history of the church, especially in Roman Catholicism, uh, they never wanted to challenge and confront culture with the differences. They just assimilated. So whenever they would go somewhere, they would take whatever gods and goddesses or saints or holy days pagan religions had, and they would just sort of co-opt that. So when uh, they went into uh, the uh, uh, areas where there was the fertility worship rather than uh, challenging the spring festival to the fertility goddess. They just sort of co-opted it and merged it in with the uh, celebration of Christ's resurrection. That's where we get our name, Easter. So we should never have a church bulletin that has Easter on it. So just a little point for those of you who lack that in your doctrinal education. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are faced with a problem, and it is instructive to us, and we will spend more time on this in the next few weeks, how Paul handles this problem, because this problem, like every other problem we face in life, has to be handled from a divine viewpoint, has to be handled from a framework of Scripture and not from the framework of human viewpoint, uh, cultural uh procedures that we usually think need to be used to solve problems, whether they're marriage problems, whether they're financial problems, work problems, personal problems, whatever they might be, we always have a, in any culture, whether it's a European culture, Russian culture, Asian culture, African culture, Indian culture, whatever the culture might be, there's always some sort of collective wisdom as to how to solve problems and how to uh, come to a measure of stability in life. And uh, when we study the Scriptures, what we need to realize is that the Scriptures present us with clear methodology for not just what to do, but how to do it. I always remember when I was in seminary getting engaged in various conversations with other, other students, and uh, I was amazed how many people didn't realize that methodology was just as important uh, as what you do. Now, just because you do a right thing doesn't mean it's right. If you do a right thing in a wrong way, it's wrong. If you do a wrong thing in a right way, it's wrong. The only thing that is correct is to do a right thing in a right way, and that involves every aspect of church life, whether it has to do with with witnessing, giving, whether it has to do with how you conduct yourself in an education program, in your Sunday school program, how you conduct yourself in uh, every aspect of worship, there's a right way and a wrong way, just as there is uh, uh, human viewpoint, divine viewpoint. Now, that doesn't mean there's no flexibility, but that means first and foremost, we have to stop sometimes and think about why we do things the way we do things, and that is true, especially in the arena of evangelism. There are right ways and wrong ways to go about evangelism. There's right and wrong ways to go about problem solving. So Paul is faced with a problem in the Corinthian church, and that is there is this this divisiveness in the church. There are cliques forming in the church that are focusing on personalities. Now, it's important to understand that Paul's not dealing with a division problem in Corinth that's related to doctrine. 
when there's a problem related to doctrine, you handle that one way. But this is a problem that relates to personalities, and these uh, therefore calls for a different solution. The solution he gives in verse 10, which was a mandate to unity, to not uh, divide up according to personalities. Now, this is not ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism is unity despite doctrinal differences. In, in all ecumenical systems, what you do is you basically ignore doctrinal distinctives. It doesn't really matter what you believe. We all just believe something, so let's all get together and, and emote over our uh, common belief system that we all believe something, and that's usually what ecumenicalism boils down to, and the more ecumenical you become, the less doctrinal the distinctives. And you see that today. One area of ecumenicalism that few people notice is what's happening in worship. Just by way of application, I'm sure you've noticed as you drive around, uh, you will see churches here and there. There's one down on on, I can't remember the name of the highway, but it's the one that goes down through Gales Ferry and Ledger. There's a church down there that has a little sign outside that on Saturday night they have uh, contemporary worship. I think there's another church up the road here that has a sign out on Saturday night. They have contemporary worship, and you'll see that in several places. Now, I would guess that if you wanted to waste your time for three or four Saturday Saturday nights and go visit these uh, contemporary worship services, what you would discover is that they all have uh, something very much in common, and that is they're singing the same music and the same words. Now, that is because there's because of this ecumenical impact that's taken place in the arena of worship in the last in the last twenty years. Once again, it boils down to a failure to appreciate the distinction of of methodology doing a right thing in a right way, doing serious biblical study theological study on the nature of, of hymnody, singing, and worship, and, and what that involves. And what you will discover, if you've been around for a while, as some of you have, and if you've grown up in other traditions, if you grew up in Episcopal, then back in the 50s and 60s, the songs that you sang, for the most part, at an Episcopal church were quite different from the songs that you sang at a Presbyterian church. And the Presbyterian hymnal was quite different from the Baptist hymnal. And the Baptist hymnal was different from the Lutheran hymnal. And Protestant hymnals, for the most part, were different from a Catholic hymnal. And the reason is, is that people wrote songs that reflected their doctrinal distinctives. Now, sure, there were a few songs like Amazing Grace that were common to all hymnals. And what always amazed me is one time I visited a Catholic Church and a Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, the the uh, leader of the Protestant Reformation, was found in that Catholic hymnal. But that's because ecumenicalism was beginning to influence things even even back in the 60s or 70s. See, I'm not that old, so I don't remember what it was like in the 20s and 30s. But what you see is that when doctrinal distinctives don't matter anymore, it, it affects even the songs that are sung in the churches. And so what happens is you go to a Presbyterian church or a Lutheran church or a congregational church or a Baptist church today that's having a contemporary worship service, and you'll be singing the same songs. Now, I could take time to critique both the content, the lyrical content, as well as the musical content of those songs. I won't do it. Usually it's shallow and vapid and lacks any kind of doctrinal distinctive, and for the most part, contemporary worship songs, contemporary choruses are eye-centered, 
focusing on the individual's personal experience with God, which shows the self-absorption of contemporary Christianity, as opposed to the theocentric or God-centered and Christocentric nature of most of the uh, traditional hymns. Now, it's not true for all traditional hymns anymore. It's true. The negative is true for all contemporary hymns. And it's not always, as I've pointed out when I've discussed this before, it's not always a, a, a con- conflict between contemporary versus traditional. The issue is a worldview, and the worldview of the modern church is ecumenical and self-absorbed, and the worldview of the older church was not that way, and therefore that impacts the way they wrote songs. So the way you do things and how you do things is just as important as what you do, and that involves, as I've said already, problem-solving and witnessing. So we have a problem in the church, and the solution is to deal with it in terms of changing the way they're thinking about the leadership in the church. Now, in verse 11, uh, Paul tells them that he got this report from some of the employees of of Chloe who were traveling back and forth between Ephesus where Paul resides and Corinth where they would go on business. And while they were there on business, they would um, discover these problems in the Corinthian church. Now, the occasion for this division was baptism, that they were looking upon whoever baptized them as some sort of of leader, celebrity that they were associated with. Now, and the question we need to address here is what is it that caused them to think that way? What is it that caused them to think that somehow the person who baptized them was someone that they ought to uh, ally themselves in some sort of uh, personality uh, cult or association, and that's exactly what they were doing, and that's why Paul uh, brings this issue of baptism in. But we need to ask the question: what what caused that kind of mindset? What caused that mentality? And then Paul moves from talking about their lining themselves up with different leaders to the gospel, and he focuses on that in verse 17, where he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize. That doesn't mean he did not baptize, but that wasn't his primary mission. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. I want you to notice how he addresses this problem of interpersonal quarrels. He moves from the problem and its solution to focusing on the cross, that somehow this has to do with a methodology a methodology in how evangelism is carried out. He was sent to proclaim the gospel, and there we have the verb keruso, which means to proclaim, and it's related to the function in the secular culture of a secular herald or announcer who was sent out from a court, a kerux. And the interesting thing about a, about this word, and we'll come back and look at it in more detail in the future, but the the verb keruso and the noun kerux for a preacher or proclaimer, literally that's how it should be be translated, always seems to be associated with a particular content in the scriptures. And that content always seems to be giving the gospel. There's about 20 different words used in the scripture for communicating doctrinal truth. Uh, keruso is only one of those verbs. You have Verbs like laleo uh, uh, to speak, you have didasco to teach, and others that we're familiar with 
but preaching the concept a the biblical concept of the word caruso seems to be associated with giving the gospel what makes it a proclamation is that in the ancient world a carux or a, a herald was sent out from the court with an announcement so the king or the local governor or whoever the local administrator was did not have uh, public access television, did not have any sort of uh, radio program that he could announce his uh, public announcements on, didn't have the local newspaper. So they would send out a herald. And the herald's responsibility was to walk through the streets and to cry out the announcement. He was not to be distracted by people asking him questions. He was not to uh, be diverted by entertainment. He was not to be distracted or hindered by the weather. He was simply to go forth throughout the city or the town and deliver the message. He would go from block to block and cry out the message. Then he would go to the next block and cry it out again. And that's where we got in, in our English history the concept of a town crier. But he was not to be, be stopped. He was not to be questioned. He was he was called a herald because that related to his particular function. Now, in, um, unfortunately, in English, we have come to associate this one word, preaching, with everything that's done from a pulpit. And it has come to be associated with a particular style of oratory. And that whole concept I find somewhat unbiblical because it does has not dealt honestly with the words in the text. And... Um, and so what happens in most churches is you have one form of oratory on a Sunday morning where the, the pastor gets up and exhorts or encourages the congregation, and then teaching is somehow relegated to what happens on a Wednesday night or in Sunday school. The thing I find ironic is that what's happened in churches today is that the, the, the senior pastor usually teaches only once a week. That's become the trend in the last 20 years. Sometimes he st- he he's in the he communicates twice a week, a Sunday morning and also on a on a Tuesday night. But the Sunday morning message has, especially under the concept of church growth, has moved more and more towards a lightweight uh, message addressed to unbelievers or seekers who are coming into the congregation, and never more than 30 minutes. And it's usually doesn't is focused on something that's. Um, encouraging or a matter of exhortation. Rarely is it something that is doctrinal. I heard one seminary professor bemoaning this fact several years ago and made the comment in class that it had been years since he had heard a doctrinal message from a pulpit on a Sunday morning, and by doctrinal message what he meant was simply an exposition of the doctrine of redemption or propitiation of the sovereignty of God or some basic doctrine like that. Usually most messages or messages today are more psychological and relational than they are uh, doctrinal or uh, truly getting into the uh, depths of the Scriptures. And the sad thing is is that you have a man who supposedly or ideally has gone through seminary training, has spent three or four years studying Greek or Hebrew, three or four years studying theology. Now, I know in most seminaries that doesn't happen. In most seminaries, they're required to have two semesters of Hebrew, I mean, two semesters of Greek and one semester of Hebrew, which is enough to make you dangerous uh, as opposed to anything else. And they're, uh, they're maybe given one survey course on theology, basic doctrine. The rest of the time that they're in seminary, they're taking courses on how to, um, 
how to uh, have have a good educational program for your children, how to uh, uh, how to counsel those who are going through loss, how to uh, counsel those who are in a marital difficulty, all of these other more practical things, but they never get into the Word, which is the most practical of all things. So what you have is a trained man who's supposed to be the guy who knows how to teach the Scripture, who's allegedly trained in the Scriptures. He is the scriptural professional spending uh, 80% of his time in administrative function, and 80% of the church's biblical education program is on the backs of amateurs. See, that's the other word for layman. Uh, amateurs who've never had any professional training, at least in most churches, their Sunday school teachers haven't had any professional training or seminary training. If they're fortunate, perhaps they have somebody who's had a year or two, but usually not. And so they've gotten everything completely backwards, and the trained professional isn't doing what he should have been trained to do, and the untrained amateurs are doing what they're not trained to do. No wonder the church is a mess. It's because we've lost the principle emphasized in Scripture that we have to do a right thing in a right way. And so every every person has a particular function, and the purpose of the pastor-teacher is to teach the Word, not simply to preach the gospel. But in the process of teaching the Word, he will proclaim the gospel and should do it on a regular basis. In fact, I believe that every time a pastor gets in a pulpit or in any place where he's speaking, he ought to take advantage of it and at least make the gospel clear no matter how uh, brief it must be. So Paul is faced with a problem here. The problem is that in the Corinthian church, they're dividing up according to these different leaders, and he has to address that at a fundamental level. And how he addressed that shows us something about the methodology of teaching the gospel. And in verse 17, he focuses on the gospel and contrasts the biblical methodology of proclaiming the gospel with what apparently was going on in Corinth, and that was this emphasis on cleverness of speech. So what we have here is a question. What exactly is the contrast going on here? the contrast between preaching the gospel on the one hand and cleverness of speech on the other hand. In order to understand this, we have to go back to the background of Greek culture, which is exactly how Paul is going to handle this because he was a student of the secular culture, and that tells us and reminds us that as believers, we should be students of the secular culture around us, just as missionaries to any culture should be students of that culture. If you're a missionary to uh, Russia, then you need to be a student of Russian history and Russian culture. You need to come to understand what their values are and what their cultural background is and why they do the things they do. Every single culture in human history uh, whether it's a European culture, an African culture, Asian culture, Russian culture, whatever it might be, is built on human viewpoint values for the most part. Depending on the impact the Bible has had on that culture historically, uh, it, it, the, 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 the mix varies, but primarily culture is not neutral. See, the statement that culture is not neutral is a that, that's an extremely controversial statement if you don't know that. See, I've, I've sat around with seminary students and said culture is not neutral, and they want to argue about that. 
But think about what culture is. I'm not talking about high culture such as art or or literature or music or opera or ballet or something like that. I'm talking about just everyday culture. That is the norms and standards and values and the way people dress and think and operate in any given society, whether it's in North America, South America, India, Australia, China, or Japan. Every society has a certain culture, a certain way in which they look at life. And at the core of that are certain ways that they are certain things that they have to take into account. First of all, it's origins. At the core of every culture there is some concept of where that culture came from, where those people came from, how how the earth came to be, how those how man was created, how the universe came into being, whether it is a an ancient culture that sees the earth as sitting on the back of a giant tortoise or whether it's a modern evolutionary culture that sees everything as a product of time plus chance and that there is, there's no god and everything is basically material. Their view of origins indicates some idea of an ultimate deity, whether that ultimate deity is personal or impersonal. You get into uh, many religions, they have an impersonal deity. There's just some ultimate force that controls the destiny of, of history, the destiny of mankind. In other religious systems, the ultimate realities are personal. In a polytheistic religion such as the Greeks had, they had many gods, and they are very personal, but they have very little, very little power. So the concept of origins has something to do with the concept of whether there even is an ultimate deity or not. Some people have an atheistic culture where there is no ultimate deity. This affects their view of reality, the ultimate nature of reality, and affects things like whether or not the culture as a whole is going to be mystical in its orientation, or whether it's going to be uh, more rationalistic or empirical in its culture. If you have a polytheistic, or excuse me, if you have a pantheistic re- uh, religious outlook where where the gods are in everything and that everything is God, then everybody is God. And so, and, and every cow's a God, and every tree's a God, and nature equals God, and creation equals God. And so you begin to worship creation, and so God was going to speak to, to you and inside of everybody. And so everybody's going to have a little bit of God inside of them. And that will affect your view of man. If you have a biblically, a, a biblical view, a Christian view, of man, then you're going to see man is totally depraved and basically evil. But if you operate on either a, 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 a mechanical or materialistic view of man or a pantheistic view of man, then you're going to see man as basically good. How you see man, then, is going to radically affect how you understand social structures. If man is basically evil, that's going to affect the way you see the role of government and the way problems develop in a marriage. If you see man as basically good, that's going to change the way you solve the problems of man in in uh, in a society and government, and the way you solve the problems of that develop in a marriage. So origins affect the way you view deity. Deity affects the way you view ultimate reality. How you view 
the, the whether there is a God or what kind of God there is affects your understanding of who and what man is under an evolutionary worldview like that which dominates Western society. Man is the product of time plus chance and is simply a random collection of molecules. Therefore, meaning does not come from outside somewhere as if there is some divine purpose for man. Man creates his own concept of meaning. Of course, all of that then is going to affect your value system. What's right, what's wrong, what's important, and what's not important. Do values come from inside? Are they the creation of human beings as, as they collect together? Do they just develop their own values as to what's right or wrong? Or are there absolute values? If, if culture then is simply the product of man within the system creating his own concept of values, then values become, then values are relative to each social collection or culture. That means that Every culture, therefore, is equal in value. You can't really judge from one culture to the other because each person just makes the most of whatever's handed to them. And see, that's what undergirds um, postmodernism, postmodern thought, and what's called multiculturalism is then that all cultures are of equal value, and you don't really have the right to judge or evaluate or critique anybody's culture. They are what they are, and we need to accept everybody and be tolerant. And what that means in modern society is to approve of that culture, whatever it is, because it has the same equal value as your own culture. So this affects values, whether they come from inside the system, uh, whether man develops them on his own, or whether they are handed down as absolutes from outside the system, which would mean, as Christians believe, that God has created these absolutes. They're not up for discussion, and they are the same for every culture, whether they're African, whether they're South American, whether they're Asian, whether they're Western European, whether they're Russian. This, in turn, is going to affect ethics and all ethical systems. Ethics affect, then, social mores, or what the social standards are in each individual group. And social standards, in turn, are going to affect social structure and the understanding of the role of males and females in that society. So in some societies that are, have no impact from Scripture, you may develop a matriarchal society. In other societies, you develop a patriarchal society. And if there's no uh, input from the Scriptures at all in those societies, then they're going to push to extremes so that rather than recognizing some sort of uh, balance between the two, you end up with some sort of tyranny of the male or tyranny of the female, but there's no concept of true freedom and equality at the same time. Of course, it's not only going to affect the role of males and females, but that in turn would affect the entire understanding of marriage and family and the role of parents to children within that society. That in turn is going to affect the whole concept of education. In turn, the very concept of values and right and wrong is going to affect the concept of law, Law is going to affect the concept of uh, criminal justice and penalties for those who break the law in that society. And that, in turn, is going to affect politics and political form. So what we see here is that at the core of culture are religious values. There is no such thing as a religiously neutral value system or a religiously neutral culture. Every culture is a mix, therefore, of values. Some cultures are, if we could diagram, diagram it like this, you might have a, 
here's here's a culture here, and it might be a mix. There might be about two uh, percent Bible uh, influence from Bible doctrine and ninety eight percent influence from pagan culture. You might see that in some sort of a society where there's just been a very minor impact, a missionary impact. In other societies, like in Western Europe, Western Europe is what it is historically. I'm not talking about its manifestation today, but historically, probably no more, I'll be generous, 70% pagan concepts, human viewpoint that we picked up from the Greeks and the Romans, and maybe 30% the impact of the Protestant Reformation. That's what made Western Europe, especially the British-American version of Western European culture, so radically different. That's what gave birth to freedom. That gave birth to a concept of private ownership of property and the concept of, of success and succeeding and developing and building wealth. All of that came out of an understanding of the Scripture. We called it the Protestant work ethic because it had its roots in a Protestant understanding understanding of the purpose of man and the purpose of man in society. But this happens in, in every culture that, that there is, in every subculture. And today we want to try to make all cultures equal no matter what the mix is. But the problem is that we can't as Christians just accept our culture uh, as, if they're, uh, as if everything is okay. The role of the Christian is to be critical of his culture, whether your culture is African, whether it's American, whether it's Western European, German, French, whether it's Russian, whether it's Asian. Uh, only part of the, every culture is consistent with the Word of God, but the vast majority of cultural uh, values are inconsistent with the Word of God. And we grow up in that culture and are impacted by that culture, and that's what the Bible calls worldliness, and that's why the the uh, function of the spiritual growth is not to be conformed to worldliness, that, that is the cultural values around us, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which comes from learning Scripture and letting Scripture address every issue of life. So every culture is a mix of human viewpoint thought plus divine viewpoint thought, and in some gray area in between, we call something, we have something called establishment truth. So ideally you have a body of knowledge over here we're going to call divine viewpoint. This is how God views reality. God views the ultimate reality. God views the nature of mankind and God, God, and divine viewpoint values. Over here we're going to have human viewpoint thinking. Now somewhere in between, we have something we're going to call establishment truth. That's E.T. for establishment truth, not extraterrestrial. And I just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. In establishment truth, what you have is divine viewpoint absolutes that are for unbeliever and believer alike. Usually we call this something like morality. These are absolutes that God has built into the system that man must align himself with in his thinking in order to have any measure of stability in society. So even unbelievers, you go to cultures that have never had an impact from from Christianity, they're going to have a belief in some things that are right and some things that are wrong. That's what Romans 2 is all about. The very fact that they have a belief that some things are right and some things are wrong is a holdover from the fact that they are created in the image and likeness of God and is a testimony to the existence of God. 
But the more human viewpoint there is in a culture, the more there's going to be a breakdown in establishment truth. So even though they believe in marriage and family, the way they look at marriage and family is going to be more and more diverse depending on how far they are from divine viewpoint. And you can end up with all kinds of tyranny in a marriage. You look at, for example, Islamic society. They believe in marriage. They believe that the man is the head of the home. But look how bizarre it is, how tyrannical it is, and how, how it mistreats women. That's because they have taken an element of establishment truth, and because there's very little divine viewpoint there, they have pushed it beyond all limits to where it, it becomes something that is ugly and something that is horrible. So the purpose of the believer is to think in terms of culture and move towards divine viewpoint. And whenever we are doing anything, we need to operate on divine viewpoint. Now, that's exactly what Paul is doing here, is he's going to teach us something about how to face problems and handle this kind of division from a divine viewpoint framework. But before we get into it, we have to ask the question, what was going on in Greek culture? What was the Greek mindset that created this kind of environment that led to this kind of divisiveness? In order to do that, we have to turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts 18, we have studied already in our study of Corinthians because that tells us of Paul's first journey to Corinth. But in Acts 17, what we have is the episode of Paul's visit to Athens just prior to going to Corinth. And while he was in Athens, he followed his standard standard procedure to go first to the synagogue and then to Gentiles. And in verse 17, we're told he was reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace uh, every day with those who happened to be present. So notice he's not go- only going into the church, And he's talking to those who have already demonstrated positive volition toward God, not necessarily toward the gospel, but toward God, and that there were some that believed. But he also went into the marketplace, and the Greek term for the marketplace is the agora. And in the agora, that was the open marketplace in Athens. It was a a long, open colonnade, and those colonnades were called a portico or a stoa. And that word stoa is where we get the word we find in verse 18 for Stoic philosophers because of uh, where their original schools were located. So in verse 18 we read that when he went out into the marketplace, into the Agora, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There we run into that verb again, Caruso, indicating that he was proclaiming the gospel. He was announcing the gospel, which relates to two things, Jesus and the resurrection. That's exactly what Paul said in his treatise on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ died According to the Scriptures, he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the core of the gospel. And it includes both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is emphasized in this particular passage as well. So he comes to uh, Athens. Now, when he came to Athens, uh, 
Paul intended to stay there. He thought that he would or expected that he would have the same kind of positive response to the gospel that he had had in previous Greek towns in, in Philippi and Thessalonica in Berea. But he ran into something different here, and that is the intellectual or academic arrogance of the Greeks. Athens was the cultural uh, home for Greek civilization. It's the source of all that we think of when we think of, of Greek thought and Greek culture. It was the home of the golden age of Greece in the 5th century B.C., the home of Sophocles, Aristotle, and Plato, the founders of Greek thought and Greek, Greek philosophy. It's the home of Greek drama, the literature of Homer, Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus. And here was much that has been magnified, idolized, and glorified in terms of human intellectual achievement. But it is here that Paul is rejected. The event here in Acts 17 gives us a clue as to why there is such a cultural problem in Greece and in Corinth later on. Now, Paul is going to address these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers from, a, from Mars Hill, what is called the Areopagus. And the Mars Hill was where uh, philosophers would gather together and sort of hold court and debate uh, philosophical systems and philosophical ideas. And the Greeks were in love with any new idea or any new philosophical system, and they just loved it for the sake of argument, loved it for the sake of intellectual stimulation, but they were not necessarily uh, pursuing truth. Two groups of Greek philosophers are mentioned in this verse, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans, we have to understand this to understand why Paul says some things that he says. Now take note, we're talking about witnessing. Our focus is on the proclamation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17. And so we're going to see an example of how Paul proclaimed the gospel here in Acts 17. And to do that, we have to understand something about the nature of his audience. Two groups are identified, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were the followers of a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. Epicurus lived from 341 to 270 B.C., so roughly 300 years before Christ. Now, Epicurus taught that the chief end of mankind was pleasure and happiness, this was attained by avoiding any kind of excess. You weren't going to be a glutton or a drunkard uh, because that led to death. And there was a fear of death because they really didn't believe that there was any afterlife. They had a atomistic view of man. That is, man's just a collection of material atoms, not too different from modern modern man. If there were gods, they were so far out there and they were so impersonal that they had no relationship to man. They had no impact on human history whatsoever. In Roman culture, they were uh, emphasized by uh, Lucretius and Horace, who popularized the Epicurean philosophy in their poems. Now, Paul is familiar with them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice he's still dealing with the Corinthians and with Greeks. In 1 Corinthians 15, where he is dealing with the whole issue of resurrection, he quotes the this, this slogan that most of us have heard associated with the Epicureans, and that is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So this tells us that Paul is a student of the thinking of the unbelieving pagan culture to which he, to, to, to which he is taking the gospel. Now, on the other hand, we have the Stoics, and the Stoics and the Epicureans at this time 
pretty much represented the two uh, opposite extremes in, in uh, Greek thought. The Stoics were the followers of Zeno, who lived about the same time as Epicurus. He lived from 320 to 250 B.C., roughly the same time. They overlapped a little bit, and he taught... Uh, when he taught, he taught among these porches or porticos in the uh, agora, in the marketplace. And remember, the t- name of those uh, colonnades was the, were the Stoa. So they were called Stoics because they sat out there on the porches and listened to him, him teach. Now, the Stoics were pantheists. That means they identified God with creation. So for them, uh, God is an impersonal God just an impersonal purpose out there that somehow guides history. And man's responsibility, according to Zeno, was to align himself with that purpose, somehow find out what it was. Now, that's a guessing game because if it's an impersonal force, it can't communicate. If it can't communicate, then it's a guess as to what its purpose is. So somehow you have to guess and figure out what this purpose is and then align yourself to that purpose throughout uh, all the good times and bad times in life. Whatever adversity and successes you met, you had to just uh, face with the same level of endurance. That's where we get the concept of stoicism, that no matter how bad things get or good things get, you just face it with like the British stiff upper lip and you just go on with the same uh, attitude. Uh, stoicism was popularized, popularized in Roman culture by Seneca, Epictetus, and later Marcus Aurelius. And one result of this was to promote self-sufficiency in Greek culture. They were arrogant. They thought they had it all under control, and they could handle any and every situation on the basis of their uh, Stoic philosophy. So in verse 18, Paul, we find that Paul is addressing these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were challenging what he is saying. And so in verse 19, they take him up to Mars Hill to engage in a little intellectual stimulation. That's from their viewpoint. Little do they know they're going to hear the the greatest evangelist of all time give them the gospel. This is just as a side point. No matter how good you are as an evangelist, how great your uh, gift might be as an evangelist, no matter how clear your presentation might be as an evangelist, uh, people have their own volition and they may... and and often will reject your gospel presentation. It doesn't have anything to do with you, how good you are, how successful you are, how bad you are, how poor you are, how uh, fumble-bum you may be in your presentation of the gospel. It has to do with their volition. This is the best evangelist, the clearest evangelist of all time, the Apostle Paul, and they are going to reject him completely. This is one place where Paul had had one of his greatest failures, but it had nothing to do with who he was or what he did or how he went about doing it. But how he goes about doing this is uh, instructive for us. Verse 19 we read, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21, we have Luke's parenthetical comment. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. See, see, Luke is going to let it clue us into the fact that they are they're like those Paul, Paul warns Timothy about, that in the latter days there will become those who 
uh, just want to have their ears tickled. They don't really want to hear sound doctrine. They just want to be entertained. They want to hear a uh, nice rhetorical message uh, uh, following all of or the skills of oratory so that they're entertained. They don't want to hear sound doctrine and sound, uh, sound teaching. So in verse 22 we read that Paul begins to address them. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, from which he could see the great uh, Parthenon, the temple uh, there in Athens, and he addresses them. He says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. What a statement to make as he's standing in front of these Greek philosophers. This is like walking into a philosophy class uh, up at Harvard and accusing the skeptical agnostic professor that he's religious. It'd be like going into one of Stephen Jay Gould's lectures on uh, biology and paleontology and, uh, and stopping him in the middle of class, raising your hand and standing up and say, uh, Dr. Gould, I recognize that you're an extremely religious man. Or standing up in the front of, um, of uh, the president of the atheistic society and saying, well, you're, you're very religious, so well, let's talk about this. That's exactly how this would have been taken. It would, it would have arrested their attention because the last word that they would have used to describe themselves would have been religious. And yet what Paul says to them is that they are very religious in all respects. And the point that we need to understand from this is that no matter how philosophical or skeptical someone might be, no matter how much they might claim to be an atheist, no matter how much they may claim to disbelieve in God, they are, in fact, extremely religious. Every human being is extremely religious. See, we think of religion as a statement that I believe in God. But if the statement I believe in God is religious, the statement that I don't believe in God is just as religious. And therefore, atheism and secularism and humanism are just as much religions as Christianity, Buddhism, or Islam. There is no such thing as neutrality. Everybody is religious. Why is that? Because when God created us, he created us in his image, so that when man rejects God, that rejection of God is always expressed in some sort of religion. For example, if a person goes into rationalism, then they are going to end up worshiping human reason. If they go into empiricism, they're going to end up worshiping empiricism, and they're going to end up making science their god. They're going to take the limited data that they come up with in science, and they're going to project it out to try to develop some sort of absolute criteria from that limited data, whether it's limited data of reason or limited data of empiricism. If he rejects God, he may uh, go, if he's worshiping nature or worshiping uh, man's innate ability and, and makes man a god, then what happens is he goes the mystical route. Whatever he comes up with intuitively, that's what he's going to worship and identify with God. So what we have here in Acts 17 is something that is important, and that is that Every human being is inherently religious, whether they claim to believe in God or not. Verse 23, Paul says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I want you to pay attention to this because what we have here is something that, that um, 
uh, challenges most people in most doctrinal churches. See, Paul is passing through Athens, and he's examining the objects of their worship. He is making himself a student of the false belief system of the culture around him. He's not just going to Bible class and teaching. He is not expecting people to just go to Bible class and fill up their notebooks with notes, go home and read their Bibles, but to interact with the culture around them, to come to understand what they believe, why they believe it, what the weaknesses are in that belief system so that they can use that strategically in the way they present the gospel to the unbeliever. And that's exactly what Paul has done. He's gone up. He's wandered around uh Athens, he's wandered through the temples, he has wandered up on uh, Mars Hill before, and he has found that in this city there is an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And so he is going to focus in on this fact that they have this uh, altar to an unknown God, and he's going to make that this, the touchstone of his of his teaching. He is clearly an observer of culture, and he makes it clear from many things that he says in his epistles that he is very familiar with the mythologies, philosophies, thinkers, and writers of the Greek Greek culture around them. You know, it always amazes me. I remember hearing about one individual who commented to a friend of mine, said, I can't believe you read all those books. Aren't you afraid you might run across some ideas that confuse you? All I want to do is listen to tapes. You know, that's the sound of an ignorant person, a person who's never really understood doctrine, and a person who never has understood what it means to apply doctrine. Because applying doctrine means to confront the culture around you, at least in your own soul. And that means you have to learn to think and not learn to simply regurgitate. And if you don't learn to think, you can never develop epinosis doctrine in your soul. All you do is follow in some sort of rigid manner uh, what somebody else tells you to do. But what we see from the Apostle Paul and the illustration in Scripture is that we are to think. And what Paul is doing is he's thinking about the culture, and he's thinking about the ultimate realities that are um, that are present in this Greek culture, what they believe the ultimate realities are, and then he is going to challenge the underlying presupposition of that culture. See, a presupposition is an assumption. And so often when you, when you get involved in any kind of debate or any kind of discussion with somebody, the assumptions are like the foundation on a house. You just don't see that foundation. It's, you know, up here in New England, the foundation's down in the basement, and you, you don't see it. Well, you see everything that's built on it, but you never look at that foundation. Now, if you grant somebody their assumptions, if you're talking with a Muslim, and you grant him his basic assumptions, that is that Muhammad had a legitimate revelation, that Gabriel interpreted that form, and the Quran is legitimate, you've already lost your argument. Because if, he's, if everything is built on the foundation is logical, and you don't challenge the foundation, you've lost your argument. And that's what Paul does here. He challenges their foundation. Their foundational thought was that they weren't religious. He goes to this altar and says, you have an altar to an unknown God. See, you are basically religious. In verse 24, he points it out to them. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it. See, he doesn't start with the four spiritual laws. He doesn't start 
with uh, the first uh, principle in how to have a happy and meaningful life. He doesn't sit down, and he doesn't start by saying, uh, God wants you to have eternal life. He goes to more basic issues, because if you start at that point in the gospel, then what's going to happen frequently is you're going to be undercut because you haven't dealt with the other person's presuppositions. This is why studying creation and evolution is important. This is why, as a believer, you need to become familiar with the basic issues in the debate between uh, creationists and evolutionists because origins are foundational to evangelism many times. And Paul doesn't start with the cross here. He doesn't start with the incarnation of Christ. He doesn't start with the fall of Adam. Where does he start in his gospel presentation? He starts with the God who made the world. He starts with creation. He starts with the fact that that he is basically calling to what they know deep in their soul, and that is that there is a God and that God exists. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples without hands. So he begins with God as creator, draws the conclusion that as creator he is sovereign of the universe, and as sovereign of the universe he is omnipresent. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. This is a reminder of the principle in Romans 1.18 that every unbeliever knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether they'll admit it or not, that God exists. Romans 1.18 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God says that he has made it clear, clear enough, to every unbeliever that he exists. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. That means that through observation of the universe, even today you have people like uh, uh, Michael Behe, who wrote the book uh, Darwin's Black Box, makes it clear that today, as a result of everything that we've learned about uh, 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 molecular biology, and DNA, and uh, that it would be impossible for Darwin to come up with his theory today because he would know too much about all these uh, minor details, all these little things that have to come together just to create one molecule. And so he argues, and there's a tremendous move today, and he's not a creationist per se, but a recognition of the um, what's called the teleological argument, that is that there is divine, there is clearly purpose in design. It's also called the design argument, that there is clear design in, in a creation and that that indicates a designer, that indicates a God. So the, verse 20 tells us that everything in creation is continuously announcing to every created human being that God exists. And what they do is that they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, verse 19, or verse, verse 18. Now, back to Acts 17, in verse 25, we read that this God, he goes on to explain him that he is not served by human hands, he's not created by human beings, as he himself is the one who gives life to all 
gives to all life and breath and all things. So here he throws out something to the Epicureans. The fact that he is saying that God transcends the creation and is self-sufficient is something that would appeal to them. So he's talking about there's a small speck of common ground here, but because it's a holdover from the fact that you have this internal knowledge that God exists. Then he goes on to say in verse um, in verse 26, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So here he's pointing out that there is purpose in the creation, and that would appeal to, this, to the um, uh, Stoics. So he is showing that there's an element of truth in their system, but the whole system is false. And then he's going to move from there and build, continue to build his argument and notice in the midst of this, he's saying that he made from one every nation of mankind, so he's going to challenge the pride of the Athenians. They thought they were better than everybody else. And he says, you come from the same uh, original human being as everybody else did, so don't be so arrogant. Uh, so he's not afraid to challenge the assumptions of his audience and tell them they're wrong. In verse 27, he goes on to say that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from one of from each one of us. In other words, there is sufficient uh, information in general re- revelation for everybody to find God. It was either handed down in specific revelation or it was held over through uh, various flood stories and legends in every culture. You know, there's stories about Noah's flood in almost every culture and every society around the earth. Now, to emphasize his point, he's going to quote from pagan philosophers. No, this doesn't valid, he's not going to them for validation of his point, but he points out that even in pagan philosophers, they recognize truth, elements of truth, every now and then. And just because he quotes from them doesn't mean he validates everything else that they say. But he does indicate his own familiarity with um, the common philosophers and writers of his day. He is not culturally ignorant. Verse 28, he quotes from Epimenides, Epimenides, the Cretan poet. He also quotes from in Titus 1.12. He starts, for in him we live and move and exist. That is a quote from Epimenides. And he says then, we also, for we also are his offspring. And that's a quote from uh, Aratus, another writer, in his book, work, Phenomena. We, where he says that we are God's offspring. So, so Paul is very deftly reaching into the various cultural assumptions they have, pulling out the things that are consistent with, with divine viewpoint, and then he is going to structure his gospel presentation on top of that. See, he's, he's familiar with what's going on in the thought of the day. He could quote from the common writers of his day. Can you quote from the common writers of our day? Are you familiar with the major thinkers in human viewpoint today? Christians in the first century were. Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome at the end of the second century, wanted to close all the libraries in Rome to Christians because the Christians were going into the libraries. They were reading all the philosophers, all the thinkers of their day, and using them against everybody successfully. They knew more about the problems in the secular human viewpoint thinking of their day than the average Roman thinker did, and they were using that wisely. So today, unfortunately, all we have is a bunch of 
uh, ignorant Christians who don't know a thing about their culture because they want to isolate themselves in evangelical enclaves. Well, in verse 30 then, Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, raising him from the dead. Notice he has furnished proof to all men. What is that proof? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why we celebrate Resurrection Day. The fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave, that the grave is empty, is one of many convincing proofs, as Luke put it in in, uh, Acts chapter 1, one of many convincing demonstrations that Jesus is who he claimed to be. See, faith in Christianity is just not some mindless acceptance of something is true, but it is based on evidence. It is based on facts. It is based on data. In fact, as a Christian, you don't put your mind in neutral to believe the Bible. In fact, you put your mind into high gear to believe the Bible. If you take anything out of this morning's message, you ought to realize that a Christian, you ought to be more intellectually engaged in the world around you and society around you than anybody else you know. In other words, a Christian is not somebody who just sort of mindlessly accepts God and has this enjoyable experience with God, but is somebody who is learning, somebody who studies, somebody who reads, somebody who is advancing in their understanding of culture for the purpose, not just for the intellectual stimulation, but for the purpose of being able to skillfully take the gospel to the unbelievers in his periphery. And part of this is a presentation of the gospel. Now, Paul stops here. He never really gets to the gospel. Why? Because in verses 30 and, or 32 and 33, what happens is they start re- reacting to him. Now, we read in verse 32, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. See, there comes a time when you're witnessing to somebody, you realize you're negative, you just stop, shut up, and move on because they're not positive. But there are other times when you sense that there are those who are positive and you give the gospel to them, and that's what happens in verse 34. There were some that were interested, some who, who heard what Paul said and wanted to know more. And verse 34, we're told that one of these was Dionysius the Areopagite. And apparently he was somebody who um, went up to Areopagus quite frequently, so frequently this was a nickname for him. And he was a, a philosophical, um, uh, was, was a philosopher of the time, apparently, or loved philosophical speculation. But when he heard the gospel, he responded. Now, the problem in Greek culture was that they tended to want to identify themselves with these particular leaders, the Stoics, the uh, Epicureans, the uh, Platonists. And they were taking that same mentality of identifying themselves with a teacher into the church. That's why Paul has to address this as a personality problem that is related to Greek culture in 1 Corinthians 1. And we'll come back and finish our study of that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, again, we thank you that we have a a faith that is not just some mindless uh, belief in, in something we think might happen, but it is something that is based on solid intellectual information that you have given us, uh, supported by historical data, and that our faith is, is something that is not irrational, but something that is 
the highest of, of, of re- calls for the highest in reason and an understanding of uh, historical empirical information. Father, we thank you that we have such uh, so many convincing proofs of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that, that you would make that sure and certain for them right now. Right where you sit, this morning you can make your destiny in heaven a sure, certain reality. All you have to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. That he is your substitute, that he did all the work, and that you do nothing except accept the free gift of God that salvation is in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved is the concise statement of the Scripture. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that they might have an impact in the transformation of our thinking and how we evangelize and that we evangelize. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.